Messages keep getting clearer. Radio's on and I'm moving round the place. I check my look in the mirror. I wanna change my clothes, my hair, my face. Man, I ain't getting lower. I'm just living in a dump like this. Something happening somewhere. Baby, I just know that there is. You can't start a fire. You can't start a fire without a spark. This gun's for hire. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. You sit around getting older. There's a joke here somewhere in its own. You take the world off your shoulders. Come on, baby, the laugh's on me. Stay on the streets of this town. And we'll be carving you up, alright. You see, you gotta stay hungry. Hey, baby, I'm just about starving tonight. I'm dying for some action. I'm sick of sitting around here trying to write this book. I need another reaction. Come on now, baby, give me just one look. You can't start a fight. Sitting around crying over a broken heart. This comes for hire. Even if we're just dancing in the dark, you can't start a fight. Worrying about your little world falling apart. This gun's for hire. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. Even if we're just dancing in I think it's time that we stop dancing in the dark and uh, we actually come out to the light. So today was the end of this symposium. Fascinating, fascinating. Before we start the show, I just wanted to tell everyone that's on other channels, please move over to Twitch and Trovo because I'm going to terminate those feeds so that way I don't lose them because I will be saying things that those other feeds don't like. Um, it's going to be quite fancy, fancy. Uh, we're really going to get into what their ultimate design is. And, um, and not a lot of people will appreciate it because it's kind of like very in your face. Is this better? Is this better? Is my sound better? Is it better now? Yes. Okay. Better. Yeah. It was my gain. So I was having a problem with my audio. So even when I was streaming, there were portions of it while, um, you know, I don't care. Regardless, I realized, and I was waiting, I was actually waiting for someone to stand up and tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I waited throughout that whole symposium. This is why I watched all of it. 
And all I could see was a show of well-groomed, uh, cultivated, manufactured records and backgrounds, people, reiterating things we've been saying for over three years, but suddenly making it theirs. And while they were very compelling and had some really great information, I feel that all of us realized that it kind of fell kind of short. Why? Because it was infiltrated, of course. And as I watched those really true good people, and there were very few that you saw in the front, right? That you saw faces because there were tons of great people in the back. I was raging. And I said, you know what? No, they thought I was going to do this yesterday. They really did. But in fact, hopefully we can get it in by midnight or else it's going to be in the morning. But see, there's one thing that I didn't do. And that's I never show all my cards. I'll give some really good ones. But the most prized one is going to answer all the questions. See, while they all go in circles and walk in circles, it was pretty interesting to, to see how quickly they uh, refused to acknowledge truth. How quickly they took credit for other people's work. I mean, that's the way the military industrial complex works, right? You do all the work and they put their name on it. And it's not about the name. It's about being consistent. You can't write a book and someone takes chapter three, four, and seven <laughs> and then decides that that's the only part of the book they're going to use. And then they rename it as the book. Same title, but the content's not there. This is why they'll be stuck in the 3X plus one cycle. This is why nothing can stop what's coming. So I asked you guys um, for some uh direction some prayer so I can direct myself better and it worked. We have uh, some incredible lawyers right now ready to file the name of the person that is responsible for the actual code within every single election machine. That's all I have to say. And oh, and it's not just the name. I have receipts. I have all the fucking receipts. So while I waited for someone to come out to my rescue while I was being slandered, right, while people took me for a ride, what they didn't realize is that was all planted information. That was all bullshit from day one. And not one of them, who is a lawyer, read the case to say this is such fucking bullshit. But all of them ran with it. All of them. And the lawyers that actually read it knew it was bullshit. They knew it was bullshit. They did. And my lawyers that, that, that are actually looking at the cases to sue the actual state are still pulling their hair, wondering how the fuck did this go through court? But again, it was all a show. I warned, don't keep saying foreign interference like that because it's not what you think. I warned, you got to watch who you follow. I warned. And this is how you do it. You let them dance. You let them sing. You let them take a lap. You let them do their pony shows, right? And you wait for them 
to be like, no, we're going to take this opportunity and do it the right way. We're going to take this opportunity and do it the right way. We're going to fix this. You wait, you wait, you give them that chance for redemption. And when they don't, all you have to do is simply really drop it down and see, here's where whatever they've done, whatever they've said is poof, gone. And you know what? The world will see that they took advantage of really good patriots. God bless Mike Lindell. God bless him. God bless every single real patriot that was out there. Because I have their names. I've been taking their names. Just like with the Chan boards and the Kun. I sat there and I fucking watched. Documented every little thing. Oh, just wait. This is going to be fun. It's going to be such super fun. See, while all of them have these war chests, right? Because they're being attacked. You watch me take the attack dog down with what? Like, I think they're going to put together three paragraphs. That's all. I had to wait. I had to wait. I'll reiterate about this again. So now as I cut the feeds, we're going to listen to a nice little song. Because we are all riders on this storm.
brightest on soul. Brightest on the soul. Of a storm, right? One hell of a storm that we've been riding out for a while, but it all comes down to this. In all your life, if anything it is that we learn as we grow with age is to give the opportunity for people to remedy their errors. We give people opportunity to remedy how they have wronged. And um, every single thing that they have done and every single single thing that they have said will now be weaponized against them. Now, here's how it goes. When all this goes and there's actual evidence, because, you know, the less than a hand count of people that are to know who? knew the name today. And so the concern that all of you should have is to watch them decide, do they back America, eat crow and back America, or do they continue the path that they have forged? Some knowingly and willingly, some unknowingly, but willingly. And some unknowingly, but very willingly. So this is where it's going to come down to. You're always supposed to give people the opportunity to do it. So the lawyers today, we're supposed to be filing that today by midnight. It'll be filed by midnight or tomorrow. That was the idea. Um, That. (laughs) Trump, the one that I came up with. And it was fantastic. I was extremely excited because the ego some people have is just ridiculous. But now I'm excited because now the people take over. I did say that John Brennan will be perping. You watch it. Because I'm someone that actually has the receipts. And you're going to see how I'm going to do it too. You never ever attack an enemy with a weapon that is new, unless it's really good. What you do is you use the weapons they used against you, against them. You use their words against them. You use their trash against them. That's how you win. Again, like I said, a lot of people talk about game theory. (laughs) How the heck are you going to play this game when you don't even know what the game is? So today I'm going to give you insight on what the end goal is of this whole thing. It's quite disturbing. We've put this together. There will be another um, video that's way shorter so that we can disseminate to the general population. Uh, with another flair to it. 
because this one doesn't have the sound bites. It has the full blown information. So this is about to blow your mind. I know a lot of you know about this, but here it is in a more concise format. And the fact that the statements that they are making is kind of like, oh, this is like an ethics commission thing. And to, how is it an ethics commission thing when you're allowed to tell people you can't talk about a senator or a congressperson? You know, look at Virginia. What a hot mess it is. We've got the governor, the lieutenant governor. Now they're attorney general, all blackface, all racist. We all know Virginia was always a racist state. Always. But see, nobody seems to remember history. Democrats are the racists. And so them purporting and saying that we're racist is just deflection. That's what corrupt people do. They deflect. They, um, you know, make you think like the other side is the bad guy. And if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Abraham Lincoln here is one of the most racist presidents we've had in modern history. And that's how they win. Right. Remember that. We're not going to make America great again. It was never that great. So now they're going to say... Because control of virus is racist, it risks black people from going to the polls, right? So even if they do uh, simply, you know, say, hey, you're wearing a mask, you should be fine. Apparently, black people are more prone. You know what makes me wonder? So we know that the elderly uh, die really easy from anything, right? But what if the Democrats are actually killing black people to get numbers like what if they're going after black americans i mean do you doubt that based on the pseudoscience of eugenics more than 30 states passed laws allowing for the forced sterilization of so-called defectives syrian birth and took my child and when they did that they sterilized me what do you think i'm worth state officials declared riddick feeble-minded and unfit to have children is birth control of such vital importance internationally? Is it just to save women suffering? Is that the only reason in your mind? Well, not entirely. The population question is a great concern today. And the, the rate at which uh, the birth, births come in to the... We're saving them now. At one time, when children died, they didn't have the food. Do you feel that birth control is essential to keep millions of people across the world from starving? Well, I think the birth control, where you keep the population uh, more or less static until you pick up your resources. Main reason is because I was poor and out and black. So I believe that with all of my heart. The problem is that the population is growing the fastest where people are less able to deal with it. So it's in the very poorest places that you're going to have a tripling in population by 2050. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are 17 targets we must meet by 2030 to ensure decent lives for all on a healthy planet. Right now, it's expected we will fail. One reason for that is the growth in our global population. Everyone deserves a long, healthy life. But when governments are poor, health systems buckle under the pressure of growing populations. Meanwhile, women and children are dying because of barriers to family planning. There is enough of everything for everyone on our planet now, if the richest nations take less and share more. 
And so their ability to feed, educate, provide jobs, stability, protect the environment in those locations mean uh, you know, they're faced with an almost impossible problem. Northern Nigeria, Yemen, Chad. What is Agenda 2063? Agenda 2063 is the master plan for transforming Africa into a global powerhouse of the future by the year 2063 and ensuring that Africa's development is driven by investments that are sustainable and benefits all people. There has been a revolutionary change in demographic research, partly because in the mid, middle of the last century, around 1945, very few countries had good population data. Something like 70 years ago, population was considered one of the biggest, biggest issues. Demographers were well aware that following World War II, there would be a sort of explosion in the growth of the world's population, in part because of, well, really driven by the knowledge that had been developed about control of disease and uh, keeping people alive and protecting them from premature death uh, is, of course, one of the great accomplishments of the 20th century. There have been huge changes, not only in population research, but in population dynamics. The world is so different from what it was just a few decades ago. It has been a demographic revolution. There was a big event in 1974. It was the World Population Conference in Bucharest. And there was discussion about uh, population policy versus uh, development policy. And the slogan it was, uh, development is the uh, best contraceptive. And after long, long, long debates, it was agreed that population affects development, but also development affects population. In an article published Tuesday in the journal Bioscience, the scientists wrote that planet Earth is, quote, facing a climate emergency. Quote, the world population must be stabilized and ideally gradually reduced. Achieving a sustainable global population matters. If we do, we can all have the dignity, security, and well-being envisioned by the Sustainable Development Goals. Fertility causing tetanus vaccines reared their heads yet again, this time fronted by NASA presidential candidate Raila Odinga, who revisited a claim made by the Catholic Church in Kenya in 2014 and 2015 that the Ministry of Health had administered tetanus vaccines contaminated with a hormone during a countrywide anti-tetanus drive, the hormone allegedly leading to infertility among the women who had received the vaccine. Odinga offering as proof an alleged analysis of the samples, which he claimed had been obtained from the laboratories of four organizations, AgriQuest, Nairobi Hospital, the University of Nairobi, and Lumset, Kenya. Documents availed by the National Super Alliance appearing to show varying amounts of the hormone in individuals that were tested. Test results in our position indicate that some of the women who got this vaccination have since sought further tests and obtained results indicating that they can never carry a pregnancy unless a process of reversing the effects is initiated. In 2014 and 2015, as the government undertook a nationwide anti-tetanus drive targeting women aged between 15 and 49, Kenyan Catholic leaders questioned the need for the program, arguing that there was no tetanus crisis in the country. These women have two things in common. 
they are HIV positive, and they say they were sterilized without their consent. This weekly therapy session helps them recover from the trauma. Roda Musao is 40, childless, and infertile. Her first child died young, and her second was stillborn. She was still recovering when her husband told the doctor to sterilize her. The doctor told me they were cleaning my stomach. I don't know what happened. I just don't know. I learned about what happened six months later. A woman rights group has published a report based on interviews with more than 40 HIV-positive women in Nairobi and Western Kenya. The women accuse some doctors in government hospitals and others in hospitals run by aid agencies of performing unauthorized sterilizations. Teresia Njoki was a report lead researcher. She says that there was no consent, women were misinformed, or sterilization was set as a condition for receiving free or discounted antiretroviral drugs and milk formula. She also says the practice goes back two decades, so many more women could have been affected. The issue of sterilization has brought double stigma for the women. Remember, we are living with HIV. Then the issue of not being able to give birth. And this is Africa, where a woman who is not able to give birth, and again, you are HIV positive, then you are no longer a woman. On June 27, 1973, a lawsuit was filed that brought national attention to the issue of racially targeted sterilization abuse. In the late 1960s and into the 70s, civil rights activists noticed a widespread trend among women of color. It was sterilization. In June of 73, the Ralph sisters, 14-year-old Minnie Lee and 12-year-old Mary Alice, who was mentally disabled, were sterilized without their knowledge or consent. These African-American girls had the procedure done at a Montgomery, Alabama family planning clinic that received federal funds. Clinic workers deceived the girl's illiterate mother into believing that she was consenting to the girls getting birth control shots. Two years earlier, the Ralph sisters had been given birth control injections as part of an experimental trial, again, without their consent. After the federal government ended that trial, the clinic nurses decided that the girls should be sterilized. The girls were targeted for sterilization because they were poor, black, and living in public housing. Let me inform you, let's all get the vaccine. It's about community immunity. I'm talking unity for you and me. If Doc says it's good, trust me, it's good. Now let's all get the vaccine. Number of people infected. Flu is now widespread in almost every single state, and nearly 10 million people have become ill so far. 4,800 of those people have died. And then between school and daycare and other activities, those germs are just churning right now. Dr. Rachel Haley with Lee Summit Medical Center takes a look at this season so far. We have seen dramatic spikes in flu illnesses on both the Missouri and Kansas side. In fact, our nine care nows have recorded 1,200 cases of the flu since December 1st. And nationally, we've 
got approximately 9.7 million people that have caught the flu. 80,000 people have gone in the hospital, and we've had 400 deaths. Data from the Rhode Island Department of Health shows there were nearly 1,400 influenza hospitalizations in the 2017-18 season, roughly 1,000 the next two years. Yet so far this season, just two. There were 60 flu deaths three years ago. This season, none. Scientists say the flu has almost disappeared in the Southern Hemisphere. It's another thing that suddenly started to disappear in Korea. The flu. They're willing to put you in jail in your home. Throw us into poverty. Shut your small business down. Make you go broke. Make, them be- make you beg for money. They are willing to kill you to maintain power. And they don't care. Because there is one cure, and you're the cure. Think about it. We heard all these doctors come out, right, and state that uh, bottom line is, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine works. Not for COVID. All this foolishness is not does not need to happen. There is a cure for COVID. There is a cure for COVID. It's called hydroxychloroquine. It's called zinc. It's called Zitromax. And it is time for the grassroots to wake up. I said, no, we're not going to take this any longer. Yes, we can use security measures. Yes, we can be careful. I'm all for that. We all are. But I think the important thing is we need to not act out of fear. We need to act out of science. We need to do it. We need to get it done. Finally, uh, the barrier, and I hate to say this, but the barrier to getting our kids back in school is not going to be the science. It's going to be the uh, national unions, the teachers' union the National Education Association, other groups who are going to demand money. And listen, I think that it's fine to give people money for PPE and different things in the classroom, but some of their demands are really ridiculous. They're talking about where I'm from in California, the UTLA, which is the United Teachers of Los Angeles, is demanding that we defund the police. What does that have to do with education? My name is Sarah Abbott, and I'm Sunrise's Team Support and Culture Director, and just incredibly glad to see how many people are on this call tonight. My name is Barshini, and I am Sunrise's Executive Director. Um, I am really glad to see almost 600 of you on this call. We are currently witnessing, you know, an an uprising against police violence and the murder of, of Black people in this country. Um, So I'm going to share a little bit about uh, the difference between some of what we're seeing and hearing in the media um, and what's really happening on the ground in Minneapolis. Um, So I grew up in rural Minnesota, where I'm calling from today, which, as the Dakota elders shared with us at the beginning of the call, is Dakota land. And I lived in South Minneapolis for many years um, in all of those burning buildings that we're seeing on Lake Street. Um, I've driven by or shopped at those stores hundreds of times. Um, And yes, this is like one of my beloved communities. Um, And what I think is so important to understand is that what we are seeing is not just um, chaos. We're actually seeing resistance and organizing. This account called Don't Shoot Us, which was posing as a part of the Black Lives Matter movement, used all of these platforms to effectively create an ecosystem where these messages highlighting police brutality, trying to galvanize African-American outrage over police brutality, those would be reinforced across a, a network of platforms. 
And with some influence, actually, we look and we see, you know, YouTube videos that together were viewed more than 350,000 times, a Facebook page that had more than 250,000 likes. All of these linked to each other, linked through an account uh, that was registered to an address that actually turned out to be a shopping mall in Illinois. That Tumblr page promoted a Pokemon Go uh, competition where if you went to sites where there had been alleged incidents of police brutality and you named your Pokemon after those victims, for instance, naming Pikachu Eric Garner, if you won that competition, this promotion suggested, you might win a free Amazon Prime card. Um, and what we know is that uprisings, including, including actions like burning buildings, um, are legitimate and powerful forms of resistance um, and are resisting brutal and violent and dehumanizing systems. Smoke rising above Washington, D.C. on the sixth night of protests. On the ground, a large fire just a couple hundred meters from the White House, one of many dramatic images on this night. The province tracks every single case, and so far, not one has been linked to those recent protests. So why is that? Well, the credit goes to a combination of things, according to the provincial health officer. They were outside for short periods of time, for one, and most kept their distance and wore a mask. All right. So welcome, everybody, to the final session of our day four, um, or, or four-day crash course to defund the police, get something to take notes. We want to make sure that this is a lot of great information and that you remember it um, so that you can continue your abolition work. Also, um, if any of you guys were wondering about music, so basically uh, all of our slides this week, uh, each day is themed after a, uh, a Disney Channel movie or Disney Channel show. So today uh, our title slide is High School Musical. So. Defunding the police is not just a demand, it's a strategy, a way to win abolition of policing, prisons, detention centers, and the values and ideas that criminalize Black, Indigenous people of color, people in poverty, and the working class. In Burnsville, there's a book called Something Happened in Our Town that was read to fourth graders. This book warns students that police are mean to Black people, but nice to white people. Cops stick up for each other, it says, and they don't like black men. When a character asks why a black man was shot, the character's sister responds, it wasn't a mistake. The cop shot him because he was black. I should add that this book is also listed by the Minnesota Department of Education, so it is likely being read in other classrooms as well. Loudoun County, Virginia, the epicenter of the fight over critical race theory being taught in America, we've seen countless parents fed up with a program that suggests white kids should be apologetic for being white. And black kids should feel oppressed even when there is no sign of oppression. In Loudoun County, it's crossed the line. Apparently, the teachers union is demanding teachers rat out other teachers for their opinions if those opinions don't agree with critical race theory. And get this, I'm not talking about in the classroom. No, these commies want teachers to turn in fellow teachers who say things in their personal lives. Don't believe me? Just watch as Laura Morris, a fifth grade teacher in Loudoun County School System, resigns because she can't take it anymore. So since my contract outlines the power that you have over my employment in Loudoun County Public Schools, I thought it necessary to resign in front of you. School board, I quit. 
I quit your policies. I quit your trainings. And I quit being a cog in a machine that tells me to push highly politicized agendas on our most vulnerable constituents, the children. I will find employment elsewhere. I encourage all parents and staff in this county to flood the private schools. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That is just sad. When the teachers union said they were focusing on division this year, I had no idea they meant critical race theory. All right. Hello, Avec. My name is Mariah. I'm a teacher in Sun. And I am Greg, your principal. We are representing Avec's Diversity and Equity Committee. And this short video is going to tell you about racial affinity groups. An affinity group is designated a designated safe space where everyone in the group shares a particular particular identity. These groups can be based on gender, sexual orientation, or language, to name a few. At ABEC, we are going to start with racial affinity groups. Racial affinity groups can provide white people the space to accept their own whiteness without shame or defensiveness and to build healthy anti-racist identities. have to design a curriculum and curricular experiences here for children that allow them to uncover the fundamental issues of our time, of which racism is one. Not to cover these issues, but to uncover them. Affinities group means that, like, when you come together, it means that you aren't just by yourself and you're not different. There's a ton, a lot. There's a lot of people that um, are like you. I think one of the most important things that white people, white students, really need to think about is their own identity and how to articulate who they are, um, where they came from, what their story is. And that is some of the most important work I think we can do with white students in thinking about how to help them become good. It's one way for you to see people who are your and other people race or religion. We have lunch together with people who um, are that race. Sometimes the work that we're doing in being white allies, I think, um, can be difficult. And I think that we all have to be honest with ourselves about why that can be difficult. Um, from my perspective, sometimes I don't know the answer or feel like I might not have the right answer. Um, and so I think always digging deeper and knowing yourself well and striving to understand what white identity is and white privilege is um, can help in the ally work that you do. I, I try my best to be a white ally, you know. I, I don't I, I don't like say, oh, oh, no, you're going, come on. Why do you have to go? I mean, would you, wouldn't you rather have lunch with me? But I know they would much rather go to the affinity groups. And if not, I shouldn't say that to make them take back that decision that's so important to who they are. And today we're talking about Dr. Kellogg. Now, some of you might have heard of Dr. Kellogg before, or if not, you've heard of the Kellogg Company and the cereal that they've made. And we're not talking about cereal today. We're actually talking about his beliefs and his beliefs in eugenics. Our collection items about eugenics generally have to do with Dr. Kellogg, which is strange. You know, you think of cornflakes and uh, sometimes exercise programs and healthy living, but you don't always think so much about 
other things, other kinds of philosophies that he might have been involved with. Kellogg really comes into the picture full force here. The first National Conference on Race Betterment this was held in 1914 in Battle Creek at Kellogg Sanitarium. Um, and this is the full program. This contains all of the speeches that were given by Kellogg and lots and lots of other people. There are names you'll recognize like Melville Dewey and his wife. They both spoke. And the conference topics cover everything from how to eat healthy and how to get enough exercise and why that's so important, right down to something called the eugenics uh, registry, which was something that Kellogg was very interested in developing. And we'll talk more about that soon. One of the pages, these are two different copies of the same book. Um, one part of this includes tables. Um, the eugenicists really tried to come up with data to support their views. Sometimes they had to kind of create the data to support their views. But this is really awful. It's uh, tables that show the rate of efficiency of proposed segregation and sterilization programs. So not only were the eugenicists trying to promote the right sex partners for the best possible children to be created, but also sterilization was a huge part of their program. Susan Rosenberg uh, is somebody that was convicted in 1985. Um, she possessed 640 pounds of explosives. She had been involved in a number of um, criminal events in New York City. Uh, and the tri-state area. She was a member of the Weather Underground and the May 19th Communist Organization. Uh, she was sentenced to 58 years in prison. Um, and uh, she was also involved in, she was a getaway driver in a Brinks uh, armored car robbery in which two cops were killed and a, and a security guard was killed. Um, so she went to prison for 58 years and she was commuted, her sentence was commuted after 16 years by President Clinton on his last day in office. You know, we've got BLM and we've got, you know, the NAACP embracing them, embracing the very people that hate them. It's, it's really incredible if you, if you think about it. So today I'm going to break down for you what you really need to know about Ilhan Omar, exposed to you. Because through this uh, New York Times op-ed, uh, a few hints and glimmers were given. But obviously, even the New York Times has no idea. There is a terrorist group, a terrorist group so covert, so covert that it's changed its name. And then Obama buried the changed name. He classified it. Remember how care and Ilhan are like oh my gosh they have terrorists and the majority are muslim and they're not letting us know why are they classifying them we should know who they are listen no they don't because then you know we're watching this name has been buried for a very long time since 2008 when it was initiated in 2010 it was completely buried and that also came hand in hand with the lawsuit that was happening if you guys know, CARE was an unindicted terrorist organization. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Now I think it's important that I show you the report of the woman and how 
she fought um, for her right to have children. It's it's a really big problem, you guys. It is a very big problem. Wait, I have to share this first, though. Did you know that ha they have eugenic courses for doctors? <laughs> you don't. Well, here it is. It's for medical students. Take a watch. Hello, guys. This is Indian Medico, and in this video, we are going to see about eugenics. This is a concise presentation for medical students. The term "u" means good, and genics means born. So. Eugenics literally means born good. Eugenics is a method of prevention of genetic disorders. The term was proposed by Galton. Galton used this term to refer to the science which aims to improve the genetic endowment of human population. Eugenics is a set of beliefs and practices that aims at improving the genetic quality of human population. This picture denotes eugenics. Eugenics is the self-direction of human evolution. Now, before we go into the details of eugenics, let us see about the methods of prevention of genetic disorders. This includes health promotion measures, specific protection, and early diagnosis and treatment. Health promotion measures include eugenics, euthanics, genetic counseling, prevention of consanguineous marriages, and prevention of late marriages. Specific protection includes Prevention of exposure to mutagens like X-rays, ionizing radiations, and other chemical mutagens. Early diagnosis and treatment includes detection of genetic carriers, prenatal diagnosis, screening of newborn infants, recognizing preclinical cases, and rehabilitation of the patients suffering from genetic conditions. Now let us see about the differences between eugenics and euthenics. Eugenics stands for manipulation of genes, whereas Euthenics is manipulating the environment for a specific genotype. Now let us see about the types of eugenics. There are two types of eugenics. They are positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Now let us see about positive eugenics. Positive eugenics seeks to improve the genetic composition of the population by encouraging the carriers of desirable genotypes to assume the burden of parenthood. Positive eugenics has very little application. It has two limitations. Many traits have a complex multifactorial determination which are determined by both genetic and environmental factors. And also, we can't determine which gene we transmit to our children. So, positive eugenics has very little application. In negative eugenics, people who are suffering from serious hereditary diseases are sterilized or debarred from producing children. The aim of negative eugenics is to reduce the frequency of hereditary disease and disability in the community to as low as possible. The limitations of Negative eugenics are new hereditary disabilities can occur due to fresh mutations and heterozygotes, which cannot be prevented by negative eugenics. If you have any suggestions, please let me know in the comment section. If you like the video, please like, share, subscribe, and tell your friends about this channel. So now doctors also... Oh, I hear an echo. Damn it. Okay, now I don't hear an echo. All right, guys. So now doctors have their own courses in eugenics. But wait, there's more. See, they only talk about one. But, you know, you're feeble-minded. So they can decide if you are allowed to have children or not. And you know what? Actually, before we get into this video, I'm going to show you something. You need to see this. Uh, let's go here. I've been telling you in nice little tidbits. For years now, I've been talking to you about cohorts. I think... One of the most important ones are here.
Take a listen. This is from 2020. Codes actually go to cohorts. You know, mm. they separate you in groups depending on the batch of vaccine you're getting. But, you know, that's a topic for another time, right? So they separate you in different cohorts so that you can get the vaccine they want you to get. Here you go. Listen to this. This is again from May 2020. But all depending on your age, you know, or whatever clinic or status you have or what insurance you present is going to be way different than, you know, the next guy. So a vaccine that I would get, you know, at the VA is not the same vaccine you will get at your community clinic. Different cohorts. Cohorts are like groups that you study. So China did this and this is why it happened. Um, I sent a very specific question to the governor of North Dakota. I want you guys to look at this very carefully. Almost every single person that has claimed to have COVID-19 has had influenza B. Influenza B at first. Influenza B, I repeat, influenza B. And this is key because the people that have exasperated uh, symptoms that they say are COVID-19 are the ones that had gotten vaccinations for influenza B. And only from specific locations. And the question you should ask yourself is, so these people are targeting you depending on your economic, you know, ability. So if you're in a poor area and they're sending vax clinics there, I would assume, <laughs> I would actually almost say for sure that they're getting rid of you as you get it. If you go to some bougie place, uh, you know, that won't give you a feeble-minded type of vaccine. <laughs> feeble-minded? Listen to this. This is an actual term. So let's get to this, which is going to, I don't know if you guys even remember this. I had to have a child at the age of 14. And when I had my son, they went in to me. <laughs> At the same time, they gave me a cesarean birth and took my child. And when they did that, they sterilized me. What do you think I'm worth? What do you think I'm worth? Elaine Riddick was just 13 when a neighbor raped her. Then she endured what she refers to as her second rape. State officials declared Riddick feeble-minded and unfit to have children. Main reason is because I was reasons is because I was poor and I am black. So I believe that with all of my heart. Based on the pseudoscience of eugenics, more than 30 states passed laws allowing for the forced sterilization of so-called defectives. The goal was to rid society of certain undesirable traits. Some of those traits that they named were um, epilepsy, feeble-mindedness, um, promiscuity, criminal mentalities, Researchers believe that as many as 100,000 Americans were victimized. By the time North Carolina ended its own eugenics program in 1974, it had taken away the reproductive rights of 7,600 people. Most, like Riddick, were poor. Tony Riddick still lives close to his mother's hometown in the coastal plain. He says she doesn't come home often. They used to call it Little Korea. Yeah, Little Korea. Uh, the reason why is because it was very violent, you know, coming up. She grew up in a very, very abusive home. 
my mother's life and my life by any measure would have been, should have been, could have been totally written off. But the fact of the matter is God still prevails. And I'm grateful for that. Very, very grateful. His mother would be grateful for justice. She drove from her adopted home in Georgia to testify before a North Carolina task force considering compensation for sterilization victims. There's nothing that the state of North Carolina can do to justify what they did to me. What they did to these other victims. You know, it's not my grandmother's fault that she was uneducated. It's not my mother's fault that she was abused by her husband. It wasn't my fault that my environment that I was raised in, that I was brought up in this type of environment. I had nothing to do with that. I was a victim. God said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth in his image. You know? And I always told everybody, how can you ever get to see the image of God when you're killing it all? Riddick is tired of feeling like a victim, but she'll have to wait until next February to see if the Tar Heel State will give her and 2,000 other eugenic survivors justice. Alan Breed, Associated Press, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, it gets better. See, because they talk to you about this twisted, demented way they believe that they know best, right? They know best. And this is why we need to own this Black Lives Matter. Oh, guys, the little viral video is really going to piss you off. That long one was an and like an education, right? The little one's really going to piss you off. Because when you see it all together, when you see what they've been planning, and when you see how they're doing it, oh, my gosh. It is the most disgusting thing you will ever because when you see, you remember when people were talking about Mockingbird, Mockingbird, and you were like, what's that? But when you saw the video with all the media saying the same thing, you were like, holy crap, this is not good. This is really not good. But I'm telling you, when you pull NIH information, CDC information, you know what you're going to find? Cohorts in your backyard testing you with different things. Do you know why I say impeach 44 is necessary? Because it's all fucking allowed thanks to Obamacare. If they classify you as genetically inept because you think, for example, or you're way too feeble-minded, <laughs> you're going to get the shot that sends you to your grave or at least sterilizes you and your lineage from ever coming up again. But this is not new, that the concern about the potential harm that can come from tinkering with the genetic code is really not new. And you say that people are sort of predispositioned to have a negative view of it because of, of our history in this country. Take us through that and tell us why this is either the same or different. So uh, I'll start by saying, I think the techniques of today are very different than what I'm about to talk about. But if we go back in history uh, to the late 1800s and the early 1900s, we have something called the American Eugenics Movement. And the American eugenics movement started with some scientists who were not terribly unlike our prominent scientists who are here with us today, who are incredibly well-intentioned, 
but who at the time really misunderstood the science. Starting with some really basic concepts of genetics, which some of you may have learned early in genetics classes like Mendelian genetics, so the idea that traits are simply, you know, that there's two characteristics of a trait or two alleles for a trait and you inherit them just that simply and every trait from eye color to everything else just has two little alleles, except traits are incredibly complex. And they thought, you know what, if this is true, if we have this kind of concept of heredity, then we should be able to breed much better populations. Uh, and we can do so through selective breeding by trying to encourage people who have what we think of as preferential traits to have children together. And we can, by doing so, get rid of some really undesirable traits such as, and the ones they were really focused on were things like criminality, as if that's just one trait, um, or epilepsy, uh, or imbecility. That was a really popular one, which is we just had to get rid of these imbeciles. And you can see this kind of um, you know, progression here, which is different characterizations of imbecility that we just have to get rid of. And you might think this sounds crazy, and it does to us today, which is one of the safeguards we have against the kind of eugenic policies that we might go down. But um, as you'll see in some of the slides that now follow this one, there's a lot uh, of things that were incorporated into this. So what happened is a lot of states started having better baby competitions where people would actually then have photographs of the multiple generations, which they measured by things like height um, or uh, color of skin or color of hair. And it was used and incorporated to try to combat things like immigration policies because people believe that immigrant populations were bringing bad traits into the population or to try to increase the amounts of sort of intelligence that they thought we might have in the population and to decrease some of the more uh, problematic traits. But at the same time, we had a lot of mental institutions. Um, and mental institutions across the country uh, were used for every different kind of person. So things like criminals to things like um, feeble-minded people to people who we thought were insane. I mean, this was the solution to a lot of different problems in society was just institutionalized people. Over time in the early 1900s, some of the states started having problems where uh, it started to become a little bit unfavorable to do this. So Virginia had a good idea. Virginia thought, we're going to pass one of these statutes, and the first person that we are going to ultimately sterilize is going to be a person who comes from a family of feeble-minded individuals. And in the case of Buck v. Bell, what happened was Carrie Buck's mother was already institutionalized and had been deemed an imbecile. Now, mind you, they didn't query what kind of education she'd received. This must have had a hereditary component. This is Carrie Buck. Carrie Buck was her 18-year-old daughter, 17 here in the picture, um, who uh, was also deemed to be an imbecile because she could only read at an eighth grade level when she was 17 years old. And she had had a daughter, Vivian, um, out of wedlock, and this was before she was institutionalized. The assessment to Vivian was she must be an imbecile as well. So Carrie was going to be the first person that Virginia was going to sterilize. And um, it turned out that Carrie was represented by an attorney who tried to actually prevent her from being sterilized and argued that she wasn't such an imbecile after all and that she had rights under the U.S. Constitution in particular, that it was cruel and unusual punishment to sterilize her and that it would violate her due process of law. And the United States Supreme Court receives this case looks at all of the evidence before them, that is that Carrie Buck's mother is an imbecile, that Carrie is an imbecile, that Vivian is apparently an imbecile because she doesn't look quite right. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's one of our most famous jurists, who has penned some of the most famous opinions uh, that stand to this day, 
wrote in a very important opinion that it was okay to go ahead and sterilize Carrie Buck. And the reason it was okay was because three generations of imbeciles is enough. Right around this time, early 1900s, getting closer to World War II, Germany had also started adopting these broad eugenic policies. Mein Kampf, written by Hitler, adopts a lot of the language of the American eugenics movement. And there was a lot of cross-dialogue between American eugenicists and Germans. As we see what the progression of that policy was in Nazi Germany, the eugenicists in this country, that word eugenics was not a terrible word as it is now. It was actually a mainstream and good word. It simply meant better babies and better health. As that became incorporated into Nazi Germany and people saw the horrors to which that could be taken, they distanced themselves from the policies of eugenics. And we now have this horrible specter of eugenics that colors the entire field. So it's impossible to have this conversation without people immediately going there and assuming what's going to happen if we do something like mitochondrial transfer is the next step is massive sterilization of everyone or massive eugenic policies of just trying to have blonde hair and blue-eyed kids. I don't think we'll go there. I think we've learned a lot from the history and the science is quite different. Wait a minute. So mitochondrial transfer, do you know what that means? Remember, we've talked about mitochondria before, and that is the only gene that you get from your mother. It is highly specific to get this, 23 haplogroups uh, on the planet that actually derive for 13 tribes. You can find the oldest one going back to Eve, 13 tribes, okay? And it's mitochondrial DNA, okay? We've talked about how important that is. We have talked about it. And so this is how they're doing it. And they are targeting the minorities. Again, here's when CNN used to, used to actually show the news, how they were killing people and sterilizing people and people were seeking compensation. Charlie Follette, a 14-year-old ward, is singing in a field when he's ordered inside. Dorsey, he shot me with some kind of medicine. Supposed to deaden the nerve. Then the next thing I heard was snip, snip. And that was it. Did they tell you what they were doing to you? No. They didn't have to tell him. He knew. A sterilization by force. How did you know what it was? Well, because see, there's been others in there that had it before me. The other boys at the home had warned him how much it would hurt. Well, when they'd done this side here, it seemed like they were pulling the whole insides out. The 1930s through the 1950s were the heyday of the eugenics movement in the United States. The goal? To rid the country of the feeble-minded, defectives. And it wasn't some fringe or secretive program. It was well-known and paid for by the states where it was practiced. Entire families labeled shiftless, degenerates. 60,000 men and women, boys and girls, sterilized. Some living at home, others like Follett in state institutions. His parents were alcoholics and couldn't care for him and his sister. 32 states had eugenics programs, but California was in a league of its own. The Golden State sterilized 20,000 people 
more than twice as many as the next state, Virginia, and a full third of the nation's total. It was led by California's elite, including, at the time, the president of Stanford University and the publisher of the Los Angeles Times. The efficiency of California's program didn't go unnoticed. In the 1930s, the Nazi party in Germany was so impressed it asked for advice, and Californians leading the program were only too happy to help. So eugenicists in California sent this book to the Nazis. Yes, they did. So the Nazis used this book as a model for their sterilization program. Absolutely. Germany used California's program as its chief example that this was a working, successful policy. California, the leader in forced sterilizations, but decades later, not a leader in making amends to victims. A few hundred survivors are still alive by one scholar's estimate, but the state has offered no reparations. Follett's tried for years, but says he can't even get a politician to talk to him, not even his own state representative, who also refused an interview request from CNN. His friend, Rudy Banlison, a nursing student, shows me letters he's written to no avail on Follett's behalf. Do you think the state of California just wants to forget about this, forget it ever happened? Honestly, I think they're just waiting. I mean, to sound so cynical, um, I think that... I'm sorry. Did you guys see the name on that letter? We should... Um, I think this should be news. You see the name? Kamala D. Harris, Attorney General, declined. She wants racial reparations, but she will not provide reparations to people that they sterilize that were black, some were white, some were Asian, that they considered feeble-minded. On Follett's behalf. Do you think the state of California just wants to forget about this, forget it ever happened? Honestly, I think they're just waiting. I mean, to sound so cynical, um, I think they're just waiting for the victims to die and forget this whole thing ever happened. Compare that chilly response to the state of North Carolina. So how many out there in the media will actually talk about how Kamala Harris declined compensation to victims of the state of California or their families since they're dead now, right, for being forced sterilized because they were too black, too stupid, too feeble-minded, or too poor? That's a pretty big story. I wonder who's going to run it. Carolina. State of North Carolina is a partner with you in trying to bring awareness. Governor Bev Perdue has invited sterilization victims to the Capitol, heard their stories, apologized personally, set up a task force to help them, and recommended that each victim receive $50,000 in reparations. In California, just a statement of apology by Governor Gray Davis in 2003 saying it was a sad and regrettable chapter in the state's history, and it is one that must never be repeated again. But what are they doing now? And it was an apology was enough then, but it's not enough for other matters. It's enough then. An apology from the governor. Is that enough? No, no. It's a start, but it's only a start. These people deserve to be compensated, just like any other victim that has had their rights violated. Where does all this leave Follett? He's 82, recovering from lung cancer, and hoping justice will come before he dies. Uh, you know, Elizabeth, your reporting on this has been incredible because I, I really had no idea this was so widespread. 60,000 Americans forcibly sterilized. Do you know how many of those people are still alive? 
you know, it's not known because except in North Carolina, Anderson, people aren't really reaching out and trying to keep track of how many victims there are. So, for example, as we said in California, one scholar thinks there's a few hundred who are still alive, but no one really knows for sure. Uh, aside from that statement by the former governor, Gray Davis, in California, have any other officials there acknowledged what happened? No, Anderson, we have spent the past few weeks calling and emailing politicians in California, and the silence has been astonishing. Wow. Don't they all look different? They all look so different. Let's take a quick break um, and get those coffee cups going. I'll see you guys in uh, just a bit. Welcome back. That was a short intermission before uh, we continue on our path or finding out real history of the United States and how it's repeating itself and no one is saying a word because then they'd lose money <laughs> pretty much. That's basically it. Nobody is going to tell you this. <laughs> They're telling you what to focus on. New data grab for your own benefit, of course, because all the other people are bad. Listen to us. Are. How did Bergy tell me this this morning? There, oh, he phrased it so nicely. He's like, well, you know, the evil ones, they just think they know best. The good ones are, well, we, our greater good is better than their greater good. You see how that works? I was really hoping that the good guys were actually the good guys. I waited for redemption. Not all of them. We're not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater, as they say. But as far as our elections, I guess it's got to be us, the little guys, the random people. Now I get it. I mean, if they hadn't attacked me like that, shit, no one would know who I am. It's, it's a good thing. And many will hang their heads in shame. Now let's get into crash course of history, of science. Most famous scientists picked a thing, but a few polymaths like Aristotle and even Cena picked everything. Francis Galton, one of the most important thinkers of the generation after Darwin, fell into column B, hardcore. Galton was a co-founder of a range of scientific disciplines, including meteorology, psychology, forensics, and above all, statistics. He was an active member of the influential British Association for the Advancement of Science. He made the first weather map. Mostly, though, he is remembered for something that we don't even count as science today. Galton was the father of eugenics. The idea that the gene pool of the human species could somehow be improved if certain people with different abilities didn't have kids. Where did Galton come up with such a terrible idea? Partly from the work of his half-cousin, Charles Darwin.
When Darwin and Wallace proposed their theory of evolution by natural selection, it was based on observing differences produced by thousands of years of gradual changes. But we, as short-lived humans, can't observe thousands of years of evolutionary change firsthand, so it was very hard to know what to do with natural selection. In the late 1800s, no one really understood how heredity worked. But many biologists, most notably Herbert Spencer, argued that survival of the fittest applied to humans humans, just like other species. So they figured there must be a technical way to use that knowledge. Spencer, for example, argued against all laws that limited class conflict, which he saw as tests of fitness, including basic child labor laws. Spencer's idea, called social Darwinism, influenced a lot of people in the late 1800s, and one of them was Darwin's younger cousin, Francis Galton. Born in 1822 to a prominent Quaker family, Galton was a child prodigy. Like Darwin, Galton was largely self-taught, a gentleman of science. Also like Darwin, he never did well in school, suffered from nervous breakdowns, and traveled widely. Unlike Darwin, Galton was not a shy scholar. He was obsessed with the idea of genius, whether it was a product of good hereditary luck or learning. For Galton, as for most Victorians, nature held all the cards. He got this idea from his cousin's hit book. On the Origin of Species blew Galton's mind. After 1859, Galton focused on the social implications of Darwin's work. He argued that an organism's most important characteristics must be biological rather than shaped by environment or experience. And like Darwin, he sought evidence for his theory. The first step was to pick some trait to track over time. He selected eminence, which today you might think of as basically awesomeness. Galton thought that if human traits can be inherited, obviously eminent men, and of course they were men, should show a decreasing level of eminence over time as intermarriage with non-eminent people diluted this trait. So he gathered all of the historical evidence he could on eminent British men and their descendants, and indeed found that eminence seemed to decrease over time. The resulting book, Hereditary Genius, published in 1869, contains the very first use of the phrase nature versus nurture. The book also, by the way, includes a chapter on eminent wrestlers of the North Country. Hereditary genius popularized the practice of historiometry, or studying human traits by tracking ancestry information. But Galton knew he was barely scratching the surface on heredity. He needed more evidence, so he did what his cousin would have done. He turned to a model from nature. This time, twins and peas instead of pigeons and barnacles. In 1875, in the paper The History of Twins, he proposed studying twins, which he saw as a natural experiment. By the mid-1900s, twin studies became the foundation of behavioral genetics, or how heredity affects behavior. Galton realized that twins presented a natural experiment. If nature is more powerful than nurture, then twins should be more similar than not, even if they're raised apart. But if nurture is more powerful, then twins should behave differently when raised apart. Galton didn't conduct his own twin studies, but he did outline what future research should look like. Galton also developed statistical methods to research inheritance, and in doing so, he created the quantitative science of human behavior, Thought Bubble, show us how. Galton also started breeding sweet peas, comparing the sizes of the offspring of different seeds. Galton's work with peas led him to conclude that traits tend toward a statistical average. Galton couldn't figure out why, but he could use statistics to model the general pattern of how traits were distributed over time. In this case, 
in a normal distribution, a bell curve. In 1884, Galton took his P model to the International Health Exhibition in London. Visitors to his anthropometric lab paid to have Galton measure their bodies, minds, and senses in various ways. He produced many new instruments in order to measure, for example, eyesight. Visitors received the results, and Galton also kept a copy to add to his library of research on variation in humans. This practice, known as anthropometry, or literally measuring humans, became common across many disciplines. Galton also pioneered the use of fingerprinting in forensics. He classified the features that we still look for, loops, whorls, and arches. Thanks, Thought Bubble. So Galton built on Darwin's work to invent a statistical science of life. But now it gets weird and frankly difficult because Galton decided that based on his investigations on inheritance, good traits such as genius and morality were diluted down to some norm over time. In 1883, one year after Cousin Chuck passed away, Galton published Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development, in which he coined the term eugenics, the discipline of good breeding, or literally making good families in humans. Galton was not the first person to suggest that smart people should have kids with each other or that cousins should avoid marrying. What Galton did was argue, based on what he saw as scientific evidence, for the public to do something about these ideas. He wanted families of merit to grow, and he thought the government should incentivize this growth. This was called positive eugenics. Galton pointed out that many well-born Victorians married late and had few kids compared to the lower classes. If this fear of the weakening of supposedly good stock by new or poor or different people sounds familiar, that's partly because Galton's so-called science of eugenics quickly gained traction. The first International Congress of Eugenics was held in 1912, the year after Galton died. And it was around this time that nations began passing eugenical laws, particularly the United States. Driven by a fear that births of supposedly inferior people would lead to weak or criminally degenerate adults, some states introduced forcible sterilization laws starting in 1907. These were mostly used to justify the sterilization of already incarcerated groups and those with different abilities. This was negative eugenics, which was not something Galton had explicitly argued for. The metaphor used by eugenicists was drawn from Darwin but modified. A family or nation was a tree, and its branches sometimes needed pruning. A famous example of this thinking in the United States was psychologist Henry Goddard's 1912 book about a family from New Jersey called the Calicacs. This was a made-up name for a real family whose genealogy Goddard studied to understand what he called feeble-mindedness or intellectual disability. In the book, Goddard compared the branch of the Calicac family that was descended from its founding father's legitimate marriage and the branch that descended from that father's affair with a, quote, nameless feeble-minded girl. Goddard concluded that feeble-mindedness was strongly heritable and a danger to democracy. Although he later admitted that this was a flawed study, it was a hit, and his terms for different levels of intelligence became common. Moron, imbecile, idiot. Goddard's attempts to quantify intelligence weren't at the fringes of science. His ideas are creepily still with us in the form of intelligence quotient, or IQ tests. Goddard, who was a big-time fan of Galtonian eugenics, translated the work of three major French psychologists in 1910. This translation was picked up by Louis Terman at Stanford University, who adapted the work of the French to create the Stanford Binet Intelligence Scales in 1916. Goddard and Terman then worked with Robert Yerkes to develop an IQ test for the U.S. Army in 1917, 
the U.S. Army introduced aptitude tests to place soldiers in different roles. But the tests were highly discriminatory, privileging white candidates from educated backgrounds. This trial of the test showed very low results for non-Northern European whites and non-whites. Goddard spent much of the rest of his life publicizing these results, even though they were contested in his own day as shoddy science. There were so many other serious Galton-inspired scientists who did creepy research on human difference and argued for terrible policies. We could do a whole creepy spin-off show. Instead, let's just talk about some of the worst. A lawyer and zoologist named Madison Grant wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race in 1916, citing Galton. Grant subdivided Caucasians into three types, claiming that the great Nordics were being rapidly outbred in the United States by inferior types of whites. Meanwhile, Charles Davenport, a very influential zoologist, founded the Eugenics Record Office at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in 1910. He collected data to help people check whether a potential marriage was suitable, and maybe unsurprisingly, Davenport was a fan of the Nazis, but probably the eugenicist most well-known to us today was the nurse who coined the term birth control and opened the first U.S. birth control clinic in 1916, Margaret Sanger. Sanger founded the American Birth Control League to educate people about safe abortion procedures and contraceptives. She gave lectures on birth control to many groups, including the KKK in 1926. In the 1920s and 30s, Sanger thought that eugenics would give her movement legitimacy. By the late 1920s, eugenics had been recognized as bad science by most practicing biologists. But as a source of policy for many lawmakers in the United States, Germany, and elsewhere, eugenics was still very much alive. In the 1800s, science had become much more important for states. They wanted to understand their populations and now shape them. Compulsory sterilization was challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court in 1927 in the famous Buck v. Bell case. But the decision, written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., sided with the eugenicists and has never technically been overturned. In fact, forced sterilization was still happening in California prisons until it was banned in 2014. Did Galton think that studying human difference would lead to bad science and even worse laws? Not necessarily. But in some ways, his legacy, a legacy of comparing humans quantitatively, is still with us. Next time, we'll see what's going on in a less creepy area of the life sciences. It's time for pasture. So this guy has some really good stuff. I mean, it's a pity that all this stuff is from long, long ago, isn't it? But what we're seeing is it's full-blown. California prisons in 2014, they were, there you go, force sterilizing them, force sterilizing them. I'm just saying, just saying, inalienable rights have been violated the minute Obamacare came to. The only way we can fix this is by impeaching 44. I'm going to do my best. I will do my best. You will do your best. Everyone will do their best. Impeach 44. It's about time. This is how we get things fixed. This is how we do it. We need to make sure that everybody knows. And the people that are not talking about this are a problem. Yes, the vaccines are doing this, 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 this. I get it. Forget about what they are doing for now. And let's get to the source of why did they create the vaccine? The virus was created for the vaccine, period. Hence why we don't have a live sample yet. And everyone's like, just fucking get the jab and listen to us now. Obey the racist scientist.
I'm Carol Reeves and I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at UCL. The Galton Collection contains objects used, invented and collected by Sir Francis Galton uh, related to his various interests in ethnography, statistics, meteorology, criminology, crime science and anthropometrics. For example, he was the first person to create a detailed statistical model of fingerprint analysis and showed that these are virtually unique and therefore an identifiable physical feature. He developed the weather map, the composite photograph, and also, of course, invented the term eugenics to describe the idea of breeding the more suitable races or classes of people whilst reducing the progeny of the less suitable. Bolton's anthropometric laboratory was incorporated into UCL in 1904, and Gorton bequeathed his own collection to UCL when he died in 1911. His protege, Carl Pearson, became the first Gorton Professor of Eugenics at UCL, although this was later changed to the Gorton Chair of Genetics. So the Gorton collection and its history are significantly important, both to UCL and to researchers who want to understand Gorton's ideas, and indeed, these were the ideas of many white Europeans of the time. Eugen Fischer was a German professor of medicine, anthropology and eugenics. Now, like many anthropologists of his time working at the turn of the 20th century, he was interested in race and its associated ideas of the evolutionary superiority and inferiority of peoples. The success of white middle-class Europeans in colonizing and subjugating indigenous peoples was believed to reflect their evolutionary and racial superiority. And Fischer conducted field research in German Southwest Africa, now Namibia, uh, in 1908, using instruments designed to scientifically measure race and by implication inferiority. These included head spanners to measure skull shapes and size, eye and hair color scales. And of course, this is the um, hair color scale that he created. This hair gauge, manufactured in about 1905 to the design of the anthropologist Eugen Fischer, is important because it contributed to the making of a science of race. The hair scale supposedly represented all the races of the world in a hierarchical manner, from flaxen blonde to deep black. It was designed to be a scientific measuring instrument, a standard hair scale, and as such, all race scientists could invest in its truth. And the truth, as far as hair was concerned, was that black, wavy and so-called woolly hair belonged to the inferior races of the world, people of the southern Mediterranean, Middle East, Asia, and above all, Africa. Wool is the hair of animals, and in humans, it was supposed to denote a status way down the evolutionary scale, up from the ape, but only just. One of the legacies of the hair scale is that the negative associations between hair and race are still prevalent. You can see it in the desire of people with black and curly hair to dye and straighten it or to wear wigs to cover it. This was particularly interesting during the increasing anti-Semitism of the Third Reich during the 1930s, when many of Hollywood's biggest stars were Jewish, but became bottled blondes overnight. 
Fisher sent an estimated 3,000 skulls of Herero and Nama prisoners back to Germany before he went on to study the offspring of German fathers and Nama mothers, arguing that these bastards might be useful as slaves, but they shouldn't reproduce. Fisher returned to Germany, where he taught anthropology and race science at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, and he became one of the most influential and powerful race scientists in Germany. He was also mentioned by Hitler in his book, Mein Kampf, and amongst his students was Joseph Mengele, the so-called Angel of Auschwitz. Fischer died in 1967, his part in racial genocide having been whitewashed. These objects exist and have a history and we need to tell that story. I first discovered Galton and eugenics when I was a student at UCL doing a master's degree in history and philosophy of science, and I was both irresistibly drawn and repelled by it. I wrote a long essay on eugenics and then I went on to look at Jewish immigration to London for a PhD, so it has had a deep impact on my research. And in fact, I teach uh, aspects of race uh, embedded into my teaching at UCL. And in turn, I haven't yet met a student who doesn't go through the same emotions of fascination and incredulity when confronted with a hair scale or anything else in the Galton collection. Particularly as Galton and Darwin were cousins, came out of the same family and had very similar values. But there's also an argument that eugenics is still with us in the form of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, female feticide, and sterilization of drug users. Wow, isn't truth stranger than fiction? Because what's that quote? Um, truth is stranger than fiction because fiction requires your story to stay within the bounds of possibilities, yet truth has no bounds. It simply is. Now I'm going to take you on a wild ride with this person's composition, which, by the way, yesterday it was um, pretty much functioning, right? All the videos, and one was just removed from our country. Enjoy. On American Experience. It was almost a mania that sort of swept through the country. The slogans were simple. Things like better babies and happy families. By the 20s, eugenics was a household word. You mean they're going to stop me from having children ever? When Adolf Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, he said Germans must emulate what the Americans are doing. The Eugenics Crusade on American Experience. In many ways, Rebecca and Patrick Coakley lived the American dream. Jackson is seven, Kaya is four, and the last edition is Kendrick. It's never boring. We have a great life. I had the pleasure of growing up in a very strong community of little people. I was literally born and raised into the disability rights movement. Rebecca is the second generation of her family with a chondroplasia, the most common form of dwarfism, and is an advocate for people with disabilities. We need fair pay. We need family leaves. Our issues are fundamentally women's issues. I was in the White House for two and a half years as President Obama's chief diversity officer. It was an incredible experience. In August of 2017, she published an editorial about genetic engineering and prenatal diagnosis. 
So as the testing becomes more and more available, obvious fear is that people will abort kids like that cute girl riding the scooter outside because of what they don't know. <laughs> that my children may end up being the last generation of people like them. I think we can look back historically. And it's scary. What is the bearing of the laws of heredity upon human affairs? Eugenics provides the answer. The idea that society would try to eliminate groups of people based on real or perceived disability is not far-fetched. One of the terrible things about eugenics was that it basically declared certain people had lives that were not worth living. In the early 1900s, the American eugenics movement arose as a response to increased immigration and rapid social change. New York City was now a restless and thriving metropolis. People are moving from farms to cities, and there's a lot of poverty and crime. So a number of scientists became convinced that this was the result of hereditary feeble-mindedness. And you could actually improve the human race by controlling their heredity. It was completely wrong, but it fit with long-standing prejudices that people had. They would hand out awards at state fairs to families that represented the best in American society and encourage them to have kids. On the flip side, they started pushing for laws allowing states to sterilize people that they judged unfit. Eugenics programs were set up in more than 30 states. They would draw these elaborate family trees and they would note whether these people had a normal intelligence and uh, then say, aha, you see, there are lots of people in this family who are feeble-minded. Forced sterilization was even approved by the Supreme Court in the 1927 case Buck v. Bell, dramatized in the film Against Her Will. I believe that preventing Carrie Buck from childbearing is our duty. In the late 1920s, support for eugenics began to wane as new research undermined its basic ideas about heredity. And then in World War II, Nazis adopted American eugenics. And they said, well, not only are we going to sterilize people, we're going to kill them too. So after World War II, eugenics as a movement completely collapsed. Despite her fears, Rebecca Coakley says reproductive choices must always be personal and that it's important to remember eugenics laws prevented people with disabilities from making these kinds of decisions for themselves. As a woman who is very pro-choice and believes that that's a fundamental right, it is hard to talk about the fact that people are going to abort kids like me. That's why having conversations like this is so important to get out there to show people that we have a life worth living and a life with dignity. I love you. This is a classic. Genetic screening was not always so complicated. When it began in the early 1970s, it was seen as a nearly miraculous way to prevent horrible suffering. Thank you. It was really scary because we knew that there was something going on. Sherry and Jeff Ungerleiter's first child, Evan, had Tay-Sachs, a fatal genetic disease. Children like Evan appear normal at birth, but soon deteriorate. It's horrible. These children go blind and deaf. They can't move on their own. 
They can't express what they're feeling. On a good day, he would have two dozen seizures. There was nothing that we could do for Evan except keeping him happy, out of pain, not suffering. There is nothing worse than knowing that your child is going to die before their fifth birthday. A family's chances of having a Tay-Sachs child are greatest if they are of Jewish heritage. Tay-Sachs is caused by a mutation in a single gene. In 1971, a test was developed to identify Tay-Sachs carriers. If both parents carried the gene, there'd be a one in four chance that the fetus would have this disorder. The Jewish population said, let's start a screening program. A simple blood test provides a way to prevent this tragedy. A Tay-Sachs testing will be held in your community soon. At synagogues, at Jewish community centers, they just set up tables, drew blood, identified the carriers. Okay, buddy. After Evan, Sherry and Jeff Ungerleiter terminated one Tay-Sachs pregnancy and had three healthy children. Sherry is now a speaker and advocate for screening. I believe knowledge is power. I loved Evan more than anything. I mean, he's my first child. And if there was any way I could have spared him, I would have. Actually, perform the genome sequencing. Ron Wapner is a geneticist and obstetrician who has been practicing since the 1970s. You can identify. He watched Tay-Sachs become the model for a whole new kind of preventive medicine. What was radical was that the community decided to do something about a genetic disease that was in their population. They almost wiped out the disease. And nowadays... Okay, so are you guys paying attention? Please pay attention. So they decided to revamp this. They took something from Ashkenazi Jews, right, to vanquish Tay-Sachs disease, which is because they're a bottlenecked. And bottlenecking is something when there's a very specific group of people that only mate with the same until they bottleneck, right? Which means they share almost all DNA. It's a term. So they pick that in order to have people to start screening. Now, there are many people that might be told, well, you know, I have this. And then you get this injection because they're helping you and they take it. But all they needed to do was give them a reason to come and supply their DNA out of fear that they may indeed provide themselves with the burden and the cross to carry of a disabled child. It's exceedingly rare to see a child with Tay-Sachs disease. But now... Some 40 years later, he says advances in technology. What we're doing is sequencing amniotic fluid samples have made it easy to screen potential carriers, fetuses, and even embryos for hundreds of genetic conditions. Everyone agrees that if it's a severe and profound disorder, we should screen for it. Well, the discussion that we need to have is where's our technology taking us? A new option, a simple blood test. The newest test, called cell-free DNA, is so easy, it's routinely advertised to pregnant women. It's actually the most widely adopted genetic test that I've seen. Genetics researcher Wendy Chung has seen screening spare families from horrible suffering. 31.3 kilos, okay, you can step out now. 
but its rapid expansion has her wondering. Okay, set up for me for just a second. I've got a lot of patients that have many of the genetic disorders that we could identify through the cell-free DNA. My heart works very hard. Yes, it does. It needs to, knowing that I have Turner syndrome. Girls with Turner syndrome, some of them will have structural differences in the way their heart is formed and differences in the way their ovaries work. I mean, sure, there's been ups and downs, but that's normal. Yeah. You eat a lot of chips? I'm sort of addicted to them. Ah. They're perfectly healthy. Who's to say that that's a disease? It's a difference. Sure. Is it something that you can still be happy, well-adjusted, productive member of our community? Of course. High five. When it began, screening was only for those with known risk. Now, Dr. Chung worries about offering more tests to more people without first educating them about what the results really mean and what various conditions entail. The concern is they buy into that idea that they need to do as much as they can to ensure a healthy child. When there's a genetic problem with their fetus, the knee-jerk reaction is it started with Tay-Sachs, so it must be the same. And so automatically they start thinking about ending that pregnancy because if it weren't bad, why would you have tested me for this in the first place? As we consider our options, as individuals and as a society, there is also the shadow of history. No matter what we do, the one line we should never cross is this always has to be voluntary. It should never be a mandate that you have to have genetic screening or testing. We have to be incredibly on our guard that we're not simply looking at people and saying, I've decided your life is not worth living. This has happened before, and as our science gets more powerful, we shouldn't let it happen again. So we should always have consent, right? That's the point. But like I said, oh, they thought it was yesterday, but it's today. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. See, Canada is running. Why? Where's Dominion from Canada? Holy shit. So Trudeau has just alerted that he is pushing the governor of General Canada to dissolve parliament on Sunday so they can have an election to seek voter approval for the government's extensive future plan regarding COVID-19. Guys, we need to move hard and fast on Dominion because the Canadians are done for. Uh, (laughs) They're next door. Oh, my gosh. It is going to get so ugly so fast. I told you it was going to be really, really ugly, really, really ugly. It's going to get so ugly. They're going to be using machines of their own company. There's no way we got to move it fast. Now, impeach 44 is what we should be focusing on to get out of this COVID mess. But in the meantime, for the elections, the lawsuit that um, we're going to be filing is going to be pretty insane because in that lawsuit will be named the person that actually did all of it. So, um... I want you guys to remember, ah, let me show you actually, you know how much shit I got years ago when I said this, I'm just going to show you how many times I said this 2019 Ted Cruz and another one by Dan Crenshaw remind you the president knows everything. I loathe it. Crenshaw talking about Crenshaw, Dan Crenshaw, 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 Crenshaw is a loser. Oh, but we see it now, right? We see it now. Because I got so much crap for that. So much crap for that. But the thing is, nobody ever wants to hear the truth. Because the truth mm-hmm, doesn't play by rules. It simply is. So, for those of you on Twitch, we're going to be reading right after this short reminder video. Uh, Canada. 
Miami. Batting for the same team, and guess what? They hijacked a grassroots movement. That team is not you. They started silencing you like crazy, putting you in jail, banning your accounts. Some of them are buried in lawsuits. Marking. Violated the law. And segregating citizens depending on their choice. Nothing was done. Even when people like John Brennan lied before. We're stealing everything. We're ignoring facts to keep you in check. They ignore you. They laugh. Then they attack you. First the guy burned himself. Then the kids did graffiti, beat an old man and arrested him. All the corruption, all the evil doings, all the kitty issues, the money laundering, the selling of our nation, the use of our federal tax dollars. The Europeans are on their face eating dirt right now. Africa is so confused on the ground and they're all looking out from the side of their eyes saying, yo, America, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's insane. Anyone who reported anything that's happening been deemed a conspiracy theorist and push. They infiltrated the Trump campaign and they infiltrated one of the most beautiful patriotic days. Infiltrated every fact to piss you off to the point. Kamala Harris. That you just Hunter don't care. Biden, Joe Biden, Ron Klain. He threatened you live on TV and you didn't even hear it. His staff. How they fooled you all. Working or trusting these completely dishonorable people. The pain that you're going to go through is because they no, have betrayed, betrayed you. The people that you trusted betrayed Everything you believe you have is an illusion. They can convince you of anything. Everything is crumbling before going into your brain and making you feel like you have no... And every out. single battle is a slap no. across your face, making you feel like there's you nothing the you can do. Believe the president they made or to even see it. That's a green five armor. They've got the money, the lawyers, the media... The megaphones, our goods, our water, our food, our commodities, we have it. That's why I gotta take down the corporation. Why should I fight? They've been bigger than us against the They're surrounding us. They're coming from the top. They're passing chapters. We need them. Our media. Appointment. There are mitigation steps. Always brings you to the right place. But the mitigation primarily relies on you, the people. The only way you learn is if you've walked right through that fight in the swamp. They took everything away from you. Indicate just how big of an end. Because you were distracted with life. I already know how this ends. The thing is, there's got to be things that are done in between. It's going to be pointless because guess what? We're going to be the same place in no time flat. I mean, look. The opportunity to stand tall for the people around the world. This is why the United States was designed to show that individuality together thrives because they all have different eyes, different ears, different hearts, different tastes. And this is why this is the most difficult nation to drop. So when you're trying to attack a giant, you guys are ready to take on Goliath. You want to find a tiny stone that attacks them where they're weak. The way to do that is to bring in a Trojan horse. We have laws on our state level. Know them. Get the money. The money was on hold until they completed their investigation. We have laws on our municipal levels. Use them. I said, you get federal tax dollars. You're discriminating against my clients. See the loopholes. And not only that, I also ding them for not being ABA compliant for the blind on their website. I ding them with everything I could and they couldn't get tax dollars. In your city, you could get shit done yesterday. You have monthly meetings. 
You don't have to wait for elections to pass a bill. All you have to do is take a hundred of your friends to, to jump through court hoops and say, I want this on the agenda. You don't need to wait for your state legislator. You don't need to wait for your state senator. You don't need to wait for your stupid governor. You have way more and that's where they sit down than on a federal level. All your little city council members think, what is going to go on right now? You guys think that, that Goliath is massive, that we can't take down... Have you guys realized what you've done? What you are doing? You can see the changing face of conservative or alternative media. Where the news, billboards, the letters, the communication, you guys are taking the reins. They hate that they're losing power, that they want to kill you. When you empower everyone else to feel the same, and you encourage them. And he needs to know more than ever that the people are behind him. You are many. They are few. That organized voice loud together, that's a big deal. You have all the power you need. Be that smart. All of it. And from small little fires going in a chain reaction across the nation, that's how you do it. You take it one bite at a time. See, when you learn to be a shark in a gold you learn how to respond faster and attack them. The strongest people are the ones you think are the weakest. It's the outsider that makes a difference. It's the person that does things because they love something. Or are you going to chase the lion and pull the sheep out of its mouth? But you have to be unintimidated in the sight of evil people. You have to be confident. You have to stand tall because you have the armor of God around you. Fearlessness because you know that God wins fearlessness because you know that you are more powerful and they know because it's coming and nothing, nothing, nothing. How hard they try not to get Just keep getting clear. Radio don't and I'm moving around the place. I check my look in the mirror. I want to change my clothes, my hair, my face. Man, I ain't getting lower. I'm just living in a dump like this Something happening somewhere Baby, I just know that there is You can't start a fire You can't start a fire without a spot This gun's for hire Even if we're just dancing in the dark Sit around getting older There's a joke here somewhere in its room You take the world off your shoulders Come on baby, the laugh's on you